feel like we have a lot of catch-up stuff to do. A lot of. Uh... I feel so off kilter and disconnected. I don't know what day or year it is. I can't remember what I've seen or what I had seen since the last time. Yeah. Well, I mean, are we in it now? Are we going to dispense with the Let's formalities and just, I'll just start it right there? Because I think the biggest thing is that we've both seen Booksmart now. I hadn't seen yes. Booksmart yet. Okay. I don't think, right? Yeah. Maybe not. And and I mean, here we are. It's a little late now. The party's kind of over. And unfortunately, it underperformed. That's very disappointing. I know. It's great. And it deserves kind of controversial. Type. Yeah. Where people were saying more people should have gone and shaming everybody on Twitter. And at the same time, it was kind of a huge rollout for a small film that didn't have any stars. That yeah. usually they would have selected fewer theaters and hoped it did well and built some buzz and word of mouth. And it just did not, it was not able to perform nationally. Yeah, too bad. I mean, too bad because it is good and people should see it. But also, of course, then people extrapolate and say it's going to be harder for original, fresh, newish movies like this to get made. And But this one did get made. That's true. And I mean, even Ma trounced it at the box office. You know, yeah. Ma. What's up with that? I know. So I feel like this is a movie. I mean, we're we talking about it now. Are we in? Are we in our podcast? I guess we're in. Welcome everybody. Okay. <laughs> I'm Dan Hammer. Um, I think that this is a movie that people will just continue to see, and it will continue to get recommended because everybody who sees it loves it. And I think it will just kind of become one of those things everyone slept on, but then sooner or later everyone saw. Yeah, it's gonna have quite a life on cable and video and streaming, whatever. So tell me your feelings about it. I, I told you I loved it. Yeah, well, of course, you know, it's always dangerous when there's so much hype and you go in and see it a little bit late. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I found it refreshing, delightful. I liked the people in it. I mean, not everybody's wonderful in this movie, but I liked the fact that they felt like realized people, that even the bullies and the mean people had dimension and that it felt so much like what I know of today's high school kids through my wife, who is a high school teacher. It's a world I don't understand and in which I am not welcome, but I just feel like I love the main characters. I love the side characters. I, I was amazed at the screenplay and uh, also by extension, the director's ability to bring in so many characters yeah, there, there were so many inroads and so many things that happened and it didn't seem overrun. Like they created a population of people that was it was a pretty extensive principal cast. Yeah. And everyone I felt felt like was featured and well used and you knew who you were watching and how they meandered into one person's story or another. It just seemed effortless. And all the performers were good. They were interesting to look at, interesting to watch. Very funny. Like, I feel like I was, like, smiling throughout. Um, Billy Lord, hear our prayer. She's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. The best. Yeah. Amazing. Breakout. I like how I. it's a fine line to tread. and and But these characters are obviously types. They're character, cartoon characters almost. And there's so many of them and they're so colorful and crazy. And yet it does end up creating a world that you wish that you could just like walk into. It's not just like a bunch of cliches and hacky jokes about types of high school kids, but it's like performers inhabiting. Its success is probably not worth trying to quantify. It should just be enjoyed. And I don't imagine it'd be easy to recreate something like that. It feels like a lightning in a bottle kind of a situation. Yeah, I, I saw it a second time, and on the second viewing, I was really taken with how they don't waste all sorts of time trying to introduce everyone. You're just observing. Yeah. When um the one kid, I forget what his name is, but comes into class to give the gift to the teacher who's right, not his right. teacher, the rich kid, like, that's a strange thing. It seems yeah. like he needs to be explained, and yet he's just not. And you kind of figure out what he's about as the thing progresses. Right. And then suddenly, you know, Gigi's on his car and what is going on with those two, you know, and then I, you discover him from the party and then it turns out he's actually pretty normal and just sort of a weirdo. Yeah. I, I, I loved it. I really, I appreciated the filmmaking and how the movie kind of sweeps you along and washes over you. And there was a, the moment in the end, kind of the big climax of, of the relationship anyway, of the main characters when they're arguing in the party and everybody takes out their phone 
and then the the sound fades out and you don't hear what they say anymore and the music takes over mm-hmm. i heard two critics one very young one a young youtube guy and one an older critic on a podcast and the the young critic was like i felt like that was a uh lack of confidence and, and a cheap move and it ruined the moment and the older critic said that they pointed to that as a moment of the filmmaking to say that's what it's like like that's a memory of that time that they had it out at that party and the specifics of what they said don't stick with you it's the feeling and the experience and it's almost like you're living a memory that's being created oh yeah i mean i'm old too and i agree with the older critic completely i think that was a really effective moment and it was so refreshing that there was no consequence to all the recording yeah, You know, you'd think usually right. we need to go back and, oh, someone posted this and now I'm in trouble because of this. And that's actually not how life works. Right. When people see like a happening that's funny or weird or embarrassing, they just record it and then usually that's it. And that's exactly what happened. Right. It creates cartoonish characters, but doesn't put them in cartoonish situations. It puts them in very relatable situations and kind of uh, saves the big emotional moments and the conflict moments for when they're going to be the most effective. Right. And I liked how the protagonists weren't necessarily pariahs. It wasn't like they were crawling out from under their rock when that when they came to their parties. They 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 were wanted. The other right. kids were like stoked that they would come out. They just had never come out and they were treated as equals. Um, only all they had to do was show up. Right. right. And I kind of appreciated that, that it wasn't like, oh, what are you doing here? Right. Or right. something like that, because I think that's not very true to life. Yeah. Uh, I think the one thing I mentioned to you already when we were messaging about the movie when I first saw it was the, the one thing I'd like a little more, and maybe there's a deleted scene somewhere about um, Amy's parents who are at one point a reference is made to their whole Jesus thing. And I wanted to, I just want to see Will Forte and uh, Lisa Kudrow. I want to explore their weird home life. There are all sorts of opportunities for a sequel, I feel yeah. here. I liked the adult characters. I felt for Jason Sudeikis as I'm realize you know i'm getting older i am him <laughs> you know the guy who like pulls up to be a lift driver yeah. for these high school students and you feel you're cool right. but then just in that moment completely deflated you're not and again he's the square adult character who's brought in trying to be cool and, and somewhat embarrassed but it's not played over the top and cruel and no. so it ends up being a great character thing same thing with their teacher who whose number they get right, right. she's a yeah, real she person. Has a fascinating little arc yeah, I mean, she should not have been there. You know, it's a right. professional yeah, boundary. But, hey, but... the, yeah, we, we live in the real world here. Right, and that's a story of a, of a – it's basically a teacher sleeping with a student. It, it is that, but it's not done yeah. in a kind of a raunchy comedy way. It's done in a way of like, oh, wow, what's her deal? Yeah, what what is her deal? She has, like, going out clothes just in the back of her car. Right. She's She's an interesting character. Clearly, she's very smart, and she takes her job seriously, and she cares about her students. And I like when a movie Not takes that... a very minor character and takes them to a surprising place by coming back to them. And this movie does that with just about every character. Yeah, nobody is wasted, and it's a very large cast. Yeah. Well, I saw a list of things. Not all of them are worth a whole lot of mention. Uh, I'll maybe just tick some of them off. You, you, you think of anything else that you've seen in, in sure. the meantime. We've had a couple weeks off. We took a little holiday last week, everybody. Mm-hmm. So sorry. Uh, we're back. Uh, I guess the next thing on my list we both saw as well, and that's The Perfection, which <laughs> yes. we had a kind of lengthy... <laughs> I'd, I'd forgotten it. <laughs> Thank you for reminding yeah. me. Yeah, The Perfection for me reminded me of Velvet Buzzsaw, one of these movies that I'm not entirely sure why it exists or why this story someone felt it needed to be told, but here we are, they made it. There's a lot of professionalism that goes into the movie making, and there are actors that I like to see playing the roles and I've got nothing else to watch, and people are talking about it on Twitter. And so I go right ahead and I turn it on. The Perfection is about this elite school for, I mean, is it only cello players? I only Apparently, saw cello yeah. players. Yeah, and if you get a spot, then you are kind of set to be a leading cellist in the world. And it's just the highest end sort of music studio there could be. And just that premise alone is completely unrealistic. And so the the point is that there's been some abuse in the school and uh, Allison Williams seeks to come back kind of stealth and avenge that abuse and release uh, some some of its victims. Yeah. And you've really 
jumped to the end there because it's this completely reverse engineered kind of black mirror thing about how that happens. Yeah. I mean, I'm just talking about it because I, I don't feel it's worthy of, of a saved watch. Yeah. I still feel like I'm speaking in riddles a little right. bit. Um, there is that device that you're talking about that you watch for a bit and then they literally rewind right. and they go back and they supply a crucial piece of information that reframes everything you've seen up to that point. Yeah. And then it goes on from there. But then, of course, a rewind and then you kind of rewatch and everything is reframed. I felt like that was, I mean, it was a necessary device because otherwise the story would have been so boring. Right. No one would have stuck with it. It was only because you didn't understand that was going on that you kept watching. Yeah. And unlike uh, we're talking about Booksmart, where you have just these really genuine characters, you have characters who have to act one way early in this movie in order not to spoil things or in order to misdirect. And then, you know, you learn the information and then, okay, now they can let down, now they can act differently because everything's out on the table. The audience has caught up. So now we can be our true selves. And that doesn't feel genuine or authentic or, or even that interesting to me. No. And I thought that the climax was disgusting and horrifying and, it happens on no sort of plane of reality except to try to have an artistic moment or some sort of um, creatively shocking moment. There is no truth in the conclusion yeah. of the story for me. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't think that it was as uh, mind-blowing and bold as it wanted to be, as it thinks it is. It, I didn't I didn't hate it. It's an interesting movie, and it's pretty short, no. so it was, it was an interesting watch, but it just it didn't leave me with a good taste. No, nor I. And yeah, it... It is an interesting watch and it is short and it's right there for free. So yeah, yeah, I went ahead and watched it and I think a lot of other people will too. Uh, while we're in the neighborhood of, of Netflix, uh, a lot of people on Twitter now talking about always be my maybe. Have you checked that out yet? I haven't. I watched it last night and uh, I liked it. It is a very traditional rom-com in its structure and in its screenplay and, and story but i think it's the cast and the the setting in san francisco it's uh it's ali wong and randall park and uh i mean the the big celebrity cameo is is what everyone's talking about so it's not a surprise that keanu reeves is in the movie but i guess i'd like to leave it a surprise how he figures in and his his appearance is i think the most enjoyable and fresh part of the movie a lot of fun not necessarily my cup of tea as a movie but uh, I, I see why people are into it. It's fresh and it's funny, and Ali Wong is great. Sounds like our non-committal sort of age. Right. You know, always be my maybe yeah. <laughs> least romantic proposal. Right. Uh, and I have one more thing that I saw, and I have things to say about it. Anything else? Though uh, I don't want to dominate the. Uh... Oh, I, I got two more things. Yeah, two more things. All right, why don't you, do, you do one now, and then I'll. Then I'll... All right, so I went to see Bright Burn. Oh, you did. That's right. Yeah, that movie. I was so disappointed. And it had so many great things going for it. In technically, it was a well-made film, and it was well cast. You're you're excited to see it, and you want to watch what these characters do. I think the premise is interesting. What if Superman, as he is 12 years old or so, kind of comes into his own, and he he has changes happening to him that he doesn't quite understand a a psychic connection to a hidden spacecraft that his parents have hidden away in their barn, which he came to Earth on, and they don't have any answers beyond that. And he just sort of realizes something's up with him and he can't figure it out. But as he figures it out, he decides to be evil instead of good. So I thought that could be sort of interesting and maybe a story to go along with why that is, why he would embrace um, evil rather than using his powers for good. The movie, though, doesn't address these questions, and it doesn't um, it doesn't let us in to any sort of existential angst that he's experiencing. Just all of a sudden, it just sort of comes to him through a psychic connection that he is superior to everybody else and that he's from another world, and he discovers he has powers. And even though he's been raised as a normal kid and has a loving family and a pretty stable community and school and home life, just all of a sudden goes bad. Hmm. And that didn't ring very true to me because you might use your powers for evil, but maybe you especially would if something happened to you or if you had something done to you or if you were fighting some sort of an injustice or you were misunderstood, some reason 
that would set you on that path. Mm-hmm. And they don't supply that. So he's the sweet kid. He's playing hide and seek with his mom. And then he's malevolent and a weirdo and a pervert overnight. And you would think that kind of like in a Hannibal Lectory way, like even the worst villains sometimes have a soft spot for like one person who they protect. Not this kid. Because he has like a sweet moment with a girl in his class when everybody else is kind of making fun of him. So you're like, oh, maybe she'll be someone who he is nice to. Nope. Hmm. He hurts her very badly. And then when her mom doesn't like how he hurt her, he goes and kills her mom in a terrible way. Hmm. And just one by one, uh, he goes through the list of everybody he knows in his life and murders them in a, in a grisly, merciless manner end of movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> why and, and so it's just like there was there was so much possibility here yeah. for you know some inner turmoil or feeling conflicted because he loves like his family and the people in his community and maybe this this girl in his class nope no conflict he's just gonna murder them hmm. and i just wish there'd been a little more to it because there could have been yeah it sounds like it wants you to buy into its concept and then just go for a ride but it, it doesn't want to keep like delivering on anything no worth investing and, in. and the actors are known for comedy and so that kind of gives a tone the movie doesn't intend because you're watching kind of this fantasy and you see comedy actors and so you kind of take it like oh this is going to be kind of light and maybe satirical yeah no it, it was intended as a very dark horror drama right and you don't realize it until you've already gone in another direction in your mind mm. Well, it's from it's not it's not a James Gunn film, but it's from his family. It's from I think his brother and cousin or something like that, and uh, they've got a sensibility. Uh, James Gunn made a film called Super. Are you familiar with that with Rain Wilson? No. It's basically a uh, a different take on a superhero mythos, not with superpowers, but basically Rain Wilson's kind of this oddball guy who feels a little bit dumped on by life and decides to become a superhero vigilante, but he just takes it too far and starts like. Like somebody cuts him off in in line at the movies, and so he bashes their head in with a wrench. And it, it, oh it's the kind of thing where it, it's not, you don't know if it's supposed to be funny or if it's supposed to be, you know, like uh, genre violent craziness like it sounds like this movie is. So I guess there's just kind of a vibe with that. Although on the other hand, James Gunn, I just rewatched the his original Guardians of the Galaxy movie last night, and I still love it. I think I will still check this movie out just out of uh, morbid curiosity, but uh, I'm not going to pursue it in the theater i guess yeah morbid curiosity would be the only reason to mm. to take a look and to analyze it it's not going to be entertaining to you and some of the uh murder scenes are just so grisly and so raw and cruel i, I was just like cut away stop it we get it it, yeah. it was it was just relentless it you, it starts to seem like it's um a final destination sort of killing mm-hmm. where they're trying to be creative with the way it happens. Right. But then it's just so cruel and you're just watching someone suffer horribly. Hmm. And I, I, I didn't appreciate that at all. The people are so stupid. Right. Everybody yeah. in the film is so stupid. <laughs> uh, rave recommendation from Dan Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, there's no reason even to follow up on what I am talking about, about the stupidity, right. just these terrible completely suspicious awful com- alarming things happen and they're like going to bed babe turn off the light when you get home you know texting yeah. it's like oh i'm <laughs> wow. not that anyone deserves this but you don't you don't see the obvious danger that you're in right my feelings are a little more complicated about the the one other title that i saw i did see rocket man a few nights ago okay yeah, so compared, it's probably not fair to compare this to Bohemian Rhapsody, except Bohemian Rhapsody just came out and is a big budget, popular biopic about famous queer musicians. It was actually directed by the same person, sort of, because when Brian Singer was let go from Bohemian Rhapsody, Dexter Fletcher finished the movie and now he's directed Rocket Man. So it just begs a comparison. People are going to compare them. And on comparison, I think Rocket Man is uh, wildly inventive and entertaining by that rubric. But for a musical, for a jukebox musical like what it is, it kind of is okay and it kind of sucks. 
is it actually a musical? It's not just the story and along the way as he composes the songs, we hear him perform the songs? Or does it use the songs to comment on the action in some way? It attempts to do the latter, which is part of its problem. Because I, there are inherent issues with uh, jukebox musicals anyway, I, I would say, where you're trying to force you know, storytelling from words and music that were not intended for that purpose to begin with. And that, I think, is even exacerbated by these songs because they're not even Elton John's words. You know, he's famously, it's part of the story in the movie right. that he doesn't come up with the words Bernie Taupin does. And Jamie Bell plays Bernie Taupin and he's he's probably one of the best parts of the movie. But these the words don't tell a story well. And so what you get, now again, to their credit, whereas Bohemian Rhapsody was just this kind of slavish chronological recreation of concert footage that if you're a fan you've seen it before and you know you know and then the, the record executive saying no one will ever bang their head to bohemian rhapsody and it was eye rolling and literal and and linear this at least is creative and tries to go all over the place to the point where eight-year-old elton john is singing the bitches back in the opening number out in the street and there's there's all kinds of fantasias on his songs and and special effects and you know and so it, it at least is great. There's a scene that was in the trailer when he first performs at the Troubadour, one of his first live shows, when the audience starts to levitate and float and he's floating, you know, and trying to keep his hands on the piano. That at least are exhilarating moments of clever filmmaking. But again, the songs don't lend themselves to that storytelling. They're not about his life and you can't force them to be about his life. And then the framing of the whole movie is that he is in rehab telling his own story. And there is literally a scene in this movie where he hugs his inner child. I heard that. Is it revealed later that you're in rehab? Or is no, it's like the a- opening scene. Okay. The opening scene is him bursting into a rehab session in his big devil costume, ripping off his, his hat and sitting down angrily and then reluctantly starting to, it's, it's like that up in your face and cheesy and Yeah. I mean, that sounds, I mean, when he hugs his inner child, I'd probably cry. Yeah, it's the climax. It's literally the climax of the movie. Spoiler, sorry. But the, but the inner child is in the, it's it's like, it's in that opening scene. We already get a glimpse of, of the child standing over in the corner, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's just, that's, I mean, again, kudos to, not again, because I didn't say this before, but good for him. I, you know, that's fine. It There is moving stuff in the movie. I just feel like, Here's the other thing. Uh, the last thing I'll say about it is that it feels like a revenge vanity project because the executive producer is Elton John and the bad guys in the movie are all the people, including his mother and father, uh, an ex-manager, all the people who hurt him. And they all get portrayed as kind of cliche movie villains. And then his big arc is having to learn how to forgive them or just cut them off. And incidentally, too, Robert Madden plays, uh, what's his name, John Reed, I think, who's the same manager from Bohemian Rhapsody. It's the same guy. Mm. So he's being portrayed as a villain in two movies in a row. And he, I believe he's still alive. So that's fun. Yeah, villain me once, shame yeah. on you. <laughs> anyway, that's my that's my thoughts on Rocket Man. Yeah, Rocket Man doesn't interest me at all. I would never go to a movie like this. I feel like I won't be able to avoid it, though, because mm-hmm. it's you know, making its rounds and it's a whole thing. Bohemian Rhapsody, though, isn't a movie I would ever go to. And it was just because I was going to everything back then when MoviePass worked that I stumbled into a theater to watch Bohemian Rhapsody. And I ended up liking it more than I expected to. And I didn't think that it deserved all the yeah. hate that it got. I it, it, you know, catapulted isn't the word I want. What's the word where you like shoot off, you know? Mm-hmm. It it shot off into the stratosphere right. of acclaim, you know, winning the Golden Globe for drama, you know, Rami Malek winning the whole way. It was winning a lot of craft awards, best picture nom. It just did amazingly well. And it, to me, it didn't seem like it was that caliber, but there was just a crew of people that really championed that movie and loved that movie. And now when I hear the great reviews, especially for the lead performance, I just think, oh, boy, what a shame timing wise, because it just seems impossible after we've already done the impossible that something that in a conventional year might have risen to the top just quite naturally. Everyone's just kind of like, oh, copycat. Right, right. It's a shame, too, because 
And again, Rami Malek's performance for all of its weirdness and prosthetics and whatever, it was good. He's, he was very good. Yeah. But um, Taron Egerton is, uh, he's doing something very impressive in, you know, in doing the singing and embodying the character in a way that's kind of his own. It, it doesn't feel like a slavish impression or an attempt to recreate things. It feels like he very much created a performance, a complete performance. Yeah, I'm sure I'll end up at it and I'll and don't worry, I'll say what I think. Sure. When I when I when I see it, it's just it feels like homework. Right. Uh all right, almost time for a break, but what did you what else did you see? You said you saw one more thing, right? Yeah, I went to see the souvenir last night. Oh, wow. I don't know. I said that like that was exciting. <laughs> I do want to see the souvenir though. <laughs> You were just elated and overjoyed. <laughs> it was recognition. I've heard of that movie. Yeah. So I went because nothing that's in the theaters right now sounds good to me, but this was something I hadn't heard of. And so I thought, I'll go see this. And it's got Tilda. It's got Tilda. She's barely in it. Mm-hmm. She, hers, I mean, it's an important role in the end, but she's barely in it. Yeah, this movie is one that really confused me. And... I was just sitting there and I started looking for reviews in the middle of the movie and mm. everybody gave it a you know four star review a plus top best movie of the year and I am just sitting there thinking okay well I'm going to stick with it and I'm going to try to see what they see and it's not like it was bad like it was a good watch it's a well made film it's a lot of interesting images really fine acting and performances it took about by my count 40 minutes for the the central idea of the conflict and what the film's going to be about to emerge. Mm. I thought it was the same actors playing different people in different time periods and different places. Turns out that's not the case. It's all taking place on one plane, but I missed that. Yeah. It, it was just so confusing to me what they were wearing and where they were at. It's it's really a film of memory. I think it's a personal film by um, Joanna Hogg, I think is the director's yeah. name, that uh, speaks some to her own story. So I imagine that these are just um, little wisps of memory that she pulled out and put onto the screen. And it's very effective uh, dramatically. It's an interesting film to watch. I just think I might be a little too dumb for it. <laughs> I left thinking that, okay, yeah, that was a really well-made movie that was thought-provoking, interesting, great performances. I wasn't bored, not at all. I have no clue what I just watched. Hmm. That's kind of what I heard about it, that it's difficult to penetrate, but that it's rewarding and that it's well-made. And I think some people were frustrated by the uh, the central relationship in the, in the movie. So she's involved in a, in a toxic relationship that she really shouldn't be a part of. She should move on from. I did have empathy for her on that, that it's not just so easy to decide to do that when you've wound yourself up for another with another person for a long time, um, especially when they're kind of keeping their distance. What is going to be the impetus for you to be like, okay, this thing, I've invested so much time and emotional energy and I have some good memories and I still have hope for to say, okay, today is the day I'm walking out the door and I'm starting my life anew without this person. That's not an easy decision to make. Mm. You just sort of continue your life and you're hoping for the best with your relationship. So I've read some of that as well. And I I disagree with that. I, I see this and I can totally understand why she was sticking around. Hmm. Did you happen to notice in the end credits that it promises a sequel? I didn't notice that, but I did read it after the fact. And it totally could have a sequel. Oh. Yeah, the ending's beautiful and a, a stunner. So I'll, I'll give it that. Okay. I just feel like when something gets like four stars and just universal acclaim, yeah. that it would be something that like, oh, yeah, I can see why that makes sense. This was a grand movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just completely confused by it. Hmm. I have not seen it showing near me. Uh, otherwise, I probably would have seen it by now. And I would be not seeing Godzilla King of the Monsters tomorrow night. I won't tell you what the souvenir is. Okay. Thanks. You're going to Godzilla? I am. What a cast. Yeah, sure. So Vera Farmiga plays Godzilla, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I figured. Yeah. Who plays Matthew Broderick? Uh, that guy. Aaron Taylor Johnson. Oh, that was the 2014 Godzilla. Oh. This is Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Kyle Chandler. That's who I'm trying to think of. Kyle Chandler. Why is this Charles Dance? Uh, Bradley Whitford's in there. Sally Hawkins. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. 
Thomas Millie Middleditch. Bobby Brown. That's bizarre. Yeah, Ken Watanabe. O'Shea Jackson Jr. Fresh off being a Christian Republican. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the big moment here, too. Yo, Godzilla, <laughs> you got room for me? My uh, ideology? I'll never forgive him for that. Uh, David Strathairn. Like, yeah. it's, it's quite a cast here. Now I got the right cast pictures that I'm scrolling through. More like this. Why does John he... Wick 3, Rocket Man, <laughs> Brightburn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Rocket Man, King of Monsters. Why doesn't Millie Bobby Brown have a have a headshot in Google? She's an it girl. Yeah. Right. We're going to talk about it girls in our main segment. Are we? We are. Oh, there's a thing in my notes. Oh, oh good. All right. So, yeah, that's, that's all I saw. Okay. All right. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the cat's meow. Welcome back. It holds up. Josh and Dan. Well, this was my choice, so I guess I have to talk about this movie now. You do. Well, The Cat's Meow is a 2001 film. Of course it is. Do you like my sound effect? Yes, that's great. (laughs) And of course it's a 2001 film because that's that's our safe zone. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It was directed by Orson Welles' protege, Peter Bogdanovich, starring Edward Herman. Kirsten Dunst, Carrie Elwes, uh, Eddie Izzard, who should act more, and Joanna Lumley, uh, one of your favorites, Dan. I know. Well, I have things to say about that, but I'll let you finish the preface. Okay. Well, this movie, uh, it recounts the legend, capital L, legend of a fateful party cruise aboard the private yacht of William Randolph Hearst, a mid-20th century media magnate where the guest of honor, uh, director Thomas Ince, played by Elwes, somehow became injured or sick and soon thereafter died. The movie suggests a love triangle between Hearst, uh, who's Herman and Marion Davies, who's Dunst, and Eddie Izzard as Charlie Chaplin, and a case of mistaken identity, which results in tragedy. And yeah, so the events of the movie are almost purely based on rumor and speculation. And the film is, I guess I'd say the film is primarily a rumination about um, fame and the corrupting and debasing effects of it and wealth and influence. And it's framed by narration from Lumley, who is kind of eulogizing Ince, but also everyone else, including herself, kind of. Um so I enjoyed this movie a lot back in 2001. I just remember because it was subject matter that I was tangentially familiar with Hearst and, and Marion Davies. And of course, these being characters that were allegedly satirized in uh, Citizen Kane. But I also recognize that it's a pretty obscure story and an obscure movie, not going to be everybody's cup of tea. It's kind of hard to follow because there aren't uh, there's not a lot of characters you've heard of. Charlie Chaplin, but he's, you know, not the heart of the movie. And also because there's not really an audience character in this movie. I guess we can get more into the the critique stuff later. But um, yeah, I like the movie. It's very much a niche movie. Uh, It reminds me a lot, the way that it plays with historical people as kind of broad types and big personalities. It reminds me of a movie like Cradle Will Rock though it has very different themes and concerns from that movie. Uh, Roger Ebert called this Gosford Yacht, which also is a nice little tie-in yeah. to our podcast canon. Yeah, and it does recall that movie, I think, in the way that it kind of eavesdrops on its characters. It kind of is just this flurry of activity, and then you're kind of just like passing through these people having this experience. That's the movie, Dan. You had not seen it before, nor had you even heard of it. Is that correct? No, I had not seen it. I had not heard of it. Uh, the idea of this crime was vaguely familiar to me. And as I was watching the movie, I was kind of feeling like it was one of those old-timey things where actually what happened or what is you know put forth to have happened is pretty straightforward and not even that interesting. 
but it's just kind of like, oh, the scandal, you know? And so old timey people who suddenly had millions out of nowhere were above the law and gods that walk among us. And they do all sorts of uh, terrible things without consequence. And that just seemed to be life as it was in that, in that time. Yeah. Uh, well, the other interesting thing about the the story is that, or the, I guess the main interesting thing when you research it is that it probably didn't happen. Tell me more about that. Uh, so Ince took ill. He was rushed back to San Diego to get him home and uh, he died a day later. The movie fills in a lot of blanks and unknown things with the speculation that became kind of the juicy story that built over the years. And there were headlines within a day that said movie producer shot on yacht. And then those headlines were erased almost immediately. But, but, but there is absolutely no evidence that there was a gun on board. There is no evidence that Ince was shot. He had an open casket. There was no wound on his head. He, uh, his wife, his widow didn't believe any of the stories. She thought they were a nuisance. Uh, he was, he had some health issues and something aggravated them. He ate salted almonds and things he wasn't supposed to eat at the party. Um, so it's more like an opportunity to, to play with these ideas and these types and this kind of, this weird moment in Hollywood and this kind of idea of, of these wealthy, powerful kind of ditzy people all gathered together. Uh, it also for Bogdanovich might be a, a chance to kind of uh, pay tribute to Wells, who again was his kind of mentor. And, you know, interesting to me is that uh, Davies. So in Citizen Kane, you know, Kane is, is supposed to be a Hearst type. I don't know that it's a one to one, but he also has at one point a uh, a mistress and a kind of hanger on who is supposed to represent Marion Davies, apparently. But she's portrayed as a kind of talentless idiot. Uh, she wants to be an opera singer. I don't know if you remember Citizen Kane, but he right. has this, this girlless girlfriend who can't sing and he kind of uses his influence to give her roles. Marion mm-hmm. Davies was already a semi-successful actress and she's portrayed in this movie as really one of the more grounded people. And in reality, she stayed with what William Randolph Hearst and financially supported him as he got ill, although she did die before him. So I spent some time reading up on the people who are on this boat. And since I don't think that the central story represents something real, I wanted to know what it was, you know, who were these people at least? Yeah. It's an interesting thing to put them all at a, at the same party and to watch what's going on in the world at that time. I felt like the movie took a turn at the, in the final moments that maybe if I had been watching with a more observant eye or had a chance to watch it again, would have seen that theme throughout where yeah. uh, Joanna Lumley's just sort of doing that voiceover about um, what they were doing there, or I forget her final, right? Her final speech, and part of me, I, I couldn't separate her from Patsy in that in that moment, right? Because even though absolutely fabulous is a, you know a ridiculous farce, there's also a lot of sadness and trauma in that character in different things that are said or in flashbacks where you see how she got this way, right? And there, there's a ruefulness in in her that I see in this character as she's looking back on the events of that that boat party. Yeah. And that I found that those final moments devastating the first time I saw it. And so I did have them, you know, even though I didn't remember a lot about this movie, that last moment where she's narrating and her and she's in her memory, she sees her reflection in the glass and she says, if we stopped, we'd have nothing. And I mm-hmm. that stuck with me more than anything else in this movie. And so I kind of was able to sprinkle that back in this because the movie really is very kind of silly. It's not like to like farce levels, but it's, it's mostly having fun until things get out of control. And then you kind of have this commentary from her that I do maybe wish that the movie had been designed and, and written in a way it is based on a play. And I'd be interested to see, you know, how this interpretation of the material compares to how it works as a play. But I would have liked to yeah, see those, I, those themes teased out a little more. Yeah, made made a little bit more obvious because I thought, oh, here's some emotional resonance that I've been missing for the entire movie. And suddenly it just sort of brought that together. Maybe if I'd watched or uh, internalized the opening speech a little bit more. But at the time, you don't know what they're talking about or who's talking or what's right. happening. So it's hard. 
I also suffer from white guy face blindness. <laughs> and I have a really hard time telling the white men apart yeah. in stories where there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> like like the women, I can tell one from another instantly, but the guys all look exactly the same to me. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, Jennifer Tilly plays Luella Parsons, who became a well-known gossip columnist. And the movie wants to claim that she got her big break by not writing about this incident and by kind of getting bought off by William Randolph Hearst. But in reality, um, her presence on the boat itself is a rumor. And she had, you know, her career didn't necessarily align with with the events of this. She also a bit of trivia. The year after this cruise took place, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis, given six months to live. But she went on to live to be 91. Oh, well, she doesn't she doesn't let anything bring her down. No, unsinkable. Joanna Lumley plays Eleanor Glynn who was a British-born columnist, and she was the one who popularized the concept of the it girl. Um, There's not a lot of information about her even being on the boat, really, frankly. There are also references to the scandalous writing of Eleanor Glynn in The Music Man and Downton Abbey. There was a pair of girls on the boat, Uh Dee Dee and Celia, who are not real people. They're kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of actresses who who were on the yacht or thought to have been on the yacht. I liked the boring married couple. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I th- okay. So, who did I like? I I like Joanna Lumley. I liked her character. I, I always I I never think of Jennifer Tilly, but I really wish that she had more of a career. I think that she's a really interesting actress, and so I like to see her here. Um, Kirsten Dunst. I, I've always had like a back and forth relationship with her. I, I feel how old would she have been at this time? Yeah, I don't know. She she seemed very like she was very young and like girlish, but then also the most adult of anybody. Right. And an interesting choice to portray her that way. Yeah. Given who the character is and and how she's been portrayed elsewhere. Yeah, I wonder cuz I was thinking through like obviously that someone's going to get shot at least in this movie was kind of a foregone conclusion. And so you're not working toward that how's that's going to happen. Yeah. You're you're sort of being introduced to a world um and and that's the journey and and that much i appreciate she was 19 by the way in this movie oh yeah so i don't know i i guess if i have criticisms of the movie i've, I've mentioned some already i think it can be a little too cute it's uh it can be a little too on the nose it symbolism is a little too you know when uh william randolph hearst is running around trying to shoot seagulls down it's it's not a very subtle movie in any way eddie izzard i not sure about his performance as Charlie Chaplin. I just find him magnetic and watchable, and I I wish that he would act more. Yeah, he did a great job. And I, I don't I guess this isn't criticism of the movie itself. It's just movies like this. I mean, I watched this in 2001, and I thought that I was watching information. You know, I realize now I'm watching mm-hmm. kind of this fantasia on rumors and speculation, which it, it and by now I, I don't I know better than to watch any movie as if it's portraying reality. And that's fine. Um, I don't think this movie needs to be true to have something to say. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it feels like a, um, a a curiosity that scratches some of my itches in terms of subject matter. And it's well done. It has an interesting cast. But I'm not sure that I come away with it with a whole lot. Yeah, I agree. I think something that I was thinking about as I was watching this, I was thinking about the progression of society and how much society had changed, say, from the late 19th century to the sinking of the Titanic. Um, When was that? 1912 or so. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like drawing from my, you know, Downton uh, theory. When you think of how women's fashion was changing and how, not that we're becoming less repressed, but there's a strange openness that everyone would get up from a table and you'd be dancing around in this crazy way. Um, with the Charleston, mm-hmm. that's something that never would have been um, in high society previously. Mm-hmm. That would have mm-hmm. been unbecoming. I feel like society was loosening up and right. stuff that had been the seedy underbelly was coming a little bit more to the surface and to the mainstream. And then we have World War II after this, obviously. And I feel after that, society went back to being quite restrained again, where Nothing is trusted. We're trying to make society stable. There's an emphasis on the nuclear family and on civic responsibility 
and anything that is seen as being a threat to that ideal is villainized. And so everyone's paranoid about uh, communism. You're getting blacklisted. That's the uh, maybe not the low point for uh, gay culture, but that's when it was quite repressed and um, persecuted and vilified by society. And then this all bubbles up to um, in the 1960s, of course, we're thinking about um, civil rights and women's rights and gay liberation at the end. It's kind of like everything that society had been trying to keep a cork on this bottle is suddenly spilling out around then. And not like we've solved any of it, but that's kind of the touch point decade we look to. And I wonder without the Second World War and with all of that societal societal repression and the in God we trust and all that stuff, what if there had been a natural societal development or a more natural out of the 1920s? What would the 30s, 40s, 50s looked like? Mm-hmm. Clearly, I've interested you with this as much as yeah, I'm no, it is. It's fascinating. <laughs> and the stuff that's going, the push and pull of this movie is very similar to some of the stuff in Downton, the more interesting commentary that exists in Downton of like what things, what traditions and formalities do we still observe and what things are we breaking down? You know, and just seeing, observing people in those times of major transition is fascinating. And it also points you to a trajectory, like you're saying, throughout history. Also, it feels to me like everybody in this, on this boat is is navigating and negotiating something. Everybody wants something yeah. from everyone else. Even Hearst, who's supposed to be the big dog, you know, everybody wants something and is constantly playing politics. That's true. And what does that say? It, it means that nobody feels very secure. Everything feels quite tenuous. And maybe for them it did, because when you have just this meteoric rise to uh, wealth and power and influence, you can probably barely believe it yourself. And as quickly as it came, you, you're fearful that it will go away. And you have, I think, you know, Hearst comes to represent this new idea of kind of media power. That here's a person that if you cozy up to this man, he can give you a career. He can cover up the bad things about you. He can advance you and vice versa. If you get on his bad side, he can destroy you because he can just have one of his pay. You know, it's it's such a a uh, foreboding uh, kind of um, portent of the world we live in today. You know, Thomas Ince the guy, uh, Carrie Elway's character who dies, he invented the studio pipeline system, basically. He was one of the pioneers of it anyway. He made hundreds of Westerns because he came up with a studio system where you could just mass produce entertainment and make several, you know, several movies a month if you wanted to pump them out. And it's interesting that he, so he's pumping out entertainment for the masses. Hearst is pumping out information and media and reportage and and we're just starting to get this idea of how these few very powerful people suddenly can control the way other people will perceive the entire world and the things they'll be afraid mm-hmm. of and the things they'll dream of and the things that they think are possible. Well said. I agree. I hadn't thought of that. But in honesty, we're we're bending over backwards to to think about these things. The movie does not put all this stuff up on a platter. This is no. We are bringing a lot. Right. To we're this. doing we're working we hard. Have a lot of interesting. Camp. A lot of interesting commentary. Oh, one more thing. I hate the font of the opening and cl- I think the closing credits are in that weird. Thank you. I was thinking like, oh, I know the name of that horrible right. font. And they did nothing creative with it. It's just white on black. Yeah. Like anybody could do it with their you know, Microsoft movie maker. And from a legendary director, uh, that, that was just very strange. He wanted to do the whole thing in black and white, I read. Yeah, that makes sense. And then compromised on the on the book ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I kind of liked that it was in color. Yeah. Even within the opulence too, there are those strange rules. Like everyone only gets one drink before dinner. What, what is, what is this you know. world? You have your uh, illegal alcohol and on your, on your boat, but then you regulate right. it. Are you glad you saw this movie, Dan? I am glad I saw this movie. I didn't know that it existed and I would be in, you know, I would have been and continued to be, interested in a movie that would tell this story i would i would turn it on it's not one of my classics or anything that i would probably return to but it's a it perfectly professional and a enjoyable way to spend uh what 90 minutes two hours yeah 
Yeah, it was nice to see it again and to have some of the things, you know, that I remembered about it clarified, some of them brought to new light. Um, I'm glad it exists. It's interesting. It's a, it's again, a curiosity, not one of my precious favorites that I carry around with me, but um, it exists. <laughs> put that on the, put that on the, what a glowing recommendation. <laughs> it exists. <laughs> It doesn't have a good home video release. It doesn't have any like special features or anything. It's on DVD and Amazon, no Blu-ray, no Criterion, any of that stuff. So uh, mm-hmm. I would like to hear the filmmakers talk about a movie like this. I, I would enjoy a commentary track on this because I think you'd get more than you get from the actual uh, storytelling in the movie. Yeah, I think this one is one that would be improved with a commentary. And we provided quite a good one here tonight for we sure have. Minutes and so if they don't make one, we can we can make a commentary track. All right, Dan. Uh, thank you for watching the movie and showing up to the podcast. I mean, it's what I committed to. You did, and you came through. Thank you for listening. We've been Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter. You can follow the show at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Uh, we're both on Letterboxd. You been on Letterboxd lately there, Dan? I think I reviewed something. Good. All right. Every now and again, I'll take a screenshot of one of my lists so that I can tweet it to someone who doesn't respond to me. Nice. Uh, I, I'm at the point. I still do it. I'm still keeping up with it, but I'll forget and I'll have to go back and, and log five movies. But I'm still checking in weekly with. Uh, yeah, I need to keep up with it because it's arduous to think, oh, yeah, I need to do like six. Our theme music is by Jonah Rapino. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be with you again in a week. Bye. Yeah, I didn't know if there was a, a double meaning because a meow is, of course, what a cat says, but we don't understand what it means. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like the the things that were articulated or put out there about this event, but it didn't come together for anyone to really put it together. Mm. Like, a, like a hidden hidden language or hidden message. Hmm. Yeah. Let's go with sure. that. That's it. You solved it. <laughs> we did it. We did it. <laughs>